0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I thank you for joining us in this last podcast of the 2010s. 16, 17 season. I know, we have to make that adjustment. It's kind of like New Year's, you know. With me in the studio today to round out the season, it's Allison Rudd, James Gearbrandt, and down the line from an undisclosed location near Matthew Sid's residence. It's Matt Hughes. We'll be making up little to-do lists for the top six teams in, in, in the Premier League. Um, talking a little bit of Huddersfield, but we got to start in Cardiff. Alison, I'll defer to you um, on this one, but uh, there was a perception that um, heading into the game, I'm always fascinated, we have an election coming up in this country as well, how like there's like a sense of what the outcome's going to be. There's an early favorite, and then the conventional wisdom says, oh no, I think the early favorite will lose, let's go for the underdog, and... And that's why we got in a situation where a lot of people were predicting Juventus to beat Real Madrid. Yeah, they were. I mean, a ton. And then kind of normal service resumes and the favourites go and stomp all over everybody. That's what, I mean, Max Allegri, the Juventus manager, talked about it after the game. He says, you know, y'all are so silly. You made it seem as if we were definitely going to go and win this game. You forget who we are and you forget who they are. Is that the sense you got?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, spookily the same. Um, and I fell for it slightly, especially after the first half hour in which I actually sat there thinking... Thank you, thank you, Juventus, for making this one of the most smoothly played, beautiful finals I've seen in a long time. Thank you for not being defensive. Thank you for not doing what you ought to have done. And I wonder if they too were sucked into this idea that actually, no, they're they're, they're quite good. They're quite good, actually. They can compete as equals. Why not? We've made the final. Although I think the world was saying this is yummy to watch. I mean, it was beautifully open and they, they were doing little tricks and they, they looked so cohesive, Juventus. Quite clearly what they should have done was ignore the hype, ignore the words and think the only way we can possibly win this final is if we just are cagey, defensive and boring as hell from the word go and do not try and run around and play football or a reasonably old defence. We need to maintain concentration and make everyone yawn, yawn, yawn and maybe, maybe we'll sneak a goal on the break and they too were sucked into the myth you described so eloquently, Gab.
1: Wow, I, I I think I could not disagree with you more.
2: Did you not enjoy the the first half and think, wow, this is beautiful stuff?
1: Yeah, but I would never go to the conclusion that they should have been more defensive. Beyond the fact that they've been...
2: Ooh, I think hindsight points that they might have been. No,
1: actually, I would argue, James, help me, you were there. You could see the whole pitch, not just a little box on a screen. They, actually, when they started the second half, Juve sat further back with a score 1-1 and Real Madrid pressed them and they couldn't get out of their own half and then that's when they ended up conceding goals. I mean, do you think it would have been better if he had ditched all the people who gotten gotten in there and put a bunch of defensive midfielders on?
3: Yeah, so I don't think they should have sat back from minute one and sort of let Real Madrid come at them in, in waves and, and just set out to defend, basically. What I do think did hurt them was the openness of the first half and the fact that it, it was... The pace it was played at, I think, sapped the energy from them, I think, a little bit. And the transformation in the second half was remarkable from it being a, a pretty even game with, with anything, if anything, Juventus on top. They just could barely get out of their half at times. And I think, in part, that was because they suffered a little from the, the pace that the first half was played at. As Alison mentioned, they are a pretty old team. I think it was the second oldest lineup ever in the Champions League final. All
1: right, so we have one guy saying that Juventus got tired. We have Allison saying that they were too attacking. Hughie,
4: um, well, I don't really know what happened, but I would certainly um, lean. Could towards you maybe just your... say that
1: it was actually Real Madrid are really, really good and man for man? They're... That's the point of Lakey made. He said after the game, you know, there's an issue of quality here overall, and if you can scheme and game plan and be all tactical all you want, but if the, other, if the other guys are cohesive and work hard and they're substantially better than you, um, that'll come out.
4: There's no doubting the best team won. Obviously, there's the Ronaldo factor. And I think Real Madrid just have more match winners in their team. Um, but it was more strange, the second half. It was like watching two different games because, as James said, after the interval, Juventus came out and they, they just did not look the same. Maybe... maybe Confidence got to them. Maybe they were tied but I mean, you know, they have pretty much run away with the with Italian league. They should have been able to to rest players and plan for this game. It was a second final in three years, so they've been there before. They know what it entails. They've all vastly experienced. Um, I I don't know, it was just it's hard to explain really the uh, the, the um, change in the nature of the games each each half.
2: I'm not saying Real Madrid weren't the better team and had all the match winners in it. Real Madrid were were fantastic. But if you if you know that and you do more is known about each individual player at Real Madrid than any other team in Europe, then why try and take them on? Why think you can outpass them or out-beautify them? Why not why not go into it being incredibly pragmatic?
1: It's a good question and I will and then the reason is to do with what Juve did in January, which was Max Allegri said, you know what, if we go out and we try to defend and we we do it sort of old school, perhaps a little bit like the way we did it when we got to the the final two years ago, Um, we're going to lose because in modern football, you have to be able to dominate the pitch as well. You have to be able to go and and take the game to the opposition even when they're qualitatively very, very high. And that's why he created this, this lineup, which if you think about it, is kind of absurdly attacking because he has, you know, he takes a center forward like Mario Mandzukic and has him play as, uh, as as a left winger. Um, he he has Dybala on there uh, and Miril Pjanic and you know so-called five star setup, which is what he called it, which you, know, you can debate whether it's five stars, but it worked. It worked to treat against Monaco, worked to treat against against Barcelona, and it's what they've been playing. and And he felt that that was necessary. A silver lining I think for Real Madrid and James, I want to get you on this is Gareth Bale being hurt meant that Isco started, which meant that all of a sudden you have Isco, Crows mm. and Modric. You have three incredible attacking midfielders and on the other side you have just kind of Sammy Kadira, Amir Limpiach. I mean it's three against two and, and they're just gonna get overrun in the middle of the park, which is what happens in the second half. I
3: completely agree. I completely agree with that reading. And and you can add that I think Casemiro for much of the second half was pushing forward as well I mean he was not exactly playing as you know he wasn't exactly sitting in front of Ramos and Varane he was he was driving forward as well and I think you're absolutely right 3-4-3 three, three, or, or kind of variants thereof you are going to run the risk of being overrun in central midfield um, I think part of the reason Chelsea for example have been able to get away with it is you've got Ungolo Kante who's a very incredibly dynamic player who's two different people exactly that um, and Sammy Kadira for all his qualities probably does not have that dynamism Tony Kroos
1: Isco and Modric if they were on normal teams they'd kind of all be number 10 attacking midfielders right they're not and I think that's kind of the miracle of this of this Real Madrid team or what they do really really well is they get hyper attacking players and they get them to say okay well if you all want to play together on this team you guys all have to go and do the grunt work and track back and, and work hard and you know, even somebody like Kroos who's really not naturally suited to do that, or or indeed Modric, who's just a little fella, they gotta go and they
4: have to go and do that. Am I right, Husey? Yeah, you are right. I think um it sounds almost odd to say this, given what he's achieved and what several teams have played for him, but I think Modric is such an underrated player. He's absolutely fabulous the way he's Kind of been reinvented as a as a worker bee or in that Real Madrid team at Tottenham. His first year at Tottenham, he was seen as a little bit flaky, talented, what do you do on a call Monday night at Stoke, etc. All those awful cliches. And he was great on his day, but his consistency and, and fitness record at Real Madrid has been absolutely extraordinary. He's been, he's been a great signing for them.
1: Arsene, taking you know, sort of a broader historical concept, they, they've now won, Real Madrid have won 12 European Cups. Anybody know who's second? It's AC Milan. They've won seven. Do you know anybody know who's third? One of them it's is Liverpool, Liverpool who've won five. So it goes
2: Liverpool and Bayern. Bayern Munich. 12 seven,
1: 5 Yeah. Liverpool, Bayern Munich, uh, Barcelona. So those three teams are, 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 are third with five each. So Real Madrid have not won as many as the guys who were second and third combined. That's their dominance. Since 1998, they've won it Six times. I mean that's that's pretty remarkable. Does this feel like a like a dynasty or a dynasty as you might call it? Back to back. I mean, you know, first back to back winners since since AC Milan in 1990, three and four years. Is, yeah, is that what? It is? And I it's know. and it's mostly the same guys too. I think nine out of the 14 who were involved were also there when they um, when they when when they won the first one of the series under under Carlo Ancelotti three years ago.
2: Yeah, no, it feels like. Uh... It feels less like a club and more like an organisation with momentum who have a a grip on how not to let your um, history slip because that's the hardest thing. Everything goes in cycles, whether you're talking about football or any other sort of business or trend or fashion or music. Everything has cycles and Real Madrid are the best at hoovering up talent. If you're a star name, you're not just there to sparkle, you're there to work hard as well. They've just they've just worked it out, so I suppose dynasty is a reasonable word for it.
1: Usually, though, the the thing is though, it, to me at least, it feels a little bit different because you look at the great dynasties of the past, and obviously Barcelona under under Pep, probably right through to Luis Enrique, had a had a very defined um, playing style. Uh, when Nottingham Forest won their two, they, they had the hugely charismatic manager. Ajax in the seventies had a very clear style, as did Bayern Munich. Milan obviously was Saki, But what's the what's the hook here? What what I mean, Allison gave a survey. I mean, do you agree with that? Can you synthesize an explanation for this Real Madrid era?
4: Oh, well, wow, at the risk of staying the obvious, um, it's Ronaldo, isn't it? Really, obviously, he's got two goals in the final. He wasn't the Ronaldo final, but he was very dominant, and he scored massive goals in the Champions League in every round of every game that they've won over the last four years. Um, I actually think we're going to take in Real Madrid's achievement for granted a little bit because of their history. Because it's not that long ago that they really struggled in the Champions League. I think they went, before Mourinho was there, they went five years without getting past the last 16 and they were sort of richly humiliated in the tournament and went out to some indifferent teams while Barcelona were winning it. Um, and they've kind of they've turned it round. unlike Real Madrid, almost really quietly, really. And, and I think it's um, obviously credit to the, the two managers who've done it, quite similar, softly spoken guys, Ancelotti and, and Zidane. whose achievement in 18 months is, is ex- extraordinary. and shouldn't be um, underestimated just because it's Real Madrid and just because they've got Ronaldo and they've got star players. I mean, other managers have been there and had those players and failed, so he deserves... Huge credit, and he deserves to be spoken of you know on the level of Guardiola Mourinho, Klopp, which which he isn't I don't think at the moment
1: a lot of people and I'll hold my hand up when he was appointed said, "Well, hang on a minute, you know you're just appointing somebody who you're not really sure he even wants to be a manager, somebody with serious was in the past has shown serious anger management issues, somebody who's kind of introverted or doesn't like speaking to the media. Doesn't really like playing political games. Doesn't need this job. In some ways, it makes him perfect for this gig for for Real Madrid. But is he a great manager, or is he a great manager for Real Madrid? I mean, well, it's, I think,
2: well you see, that is so interesting. What you just listed there, Gab, because we are we are sucked into the persona of the manager now, and in, in the you know their sound bites that the, the Mourinho type sulking, the Klopp effervescence. Everyone's got to have a persona. You can't
1: pick on Mourinho unless you also pick on Pep in the same breath, okay? So, no, if you're talking about persona, the manager.
2: I'm just throwing names out. Everybody's got a persona, and uh, we buy into them, and we assume that what we see is what they're like in the dressing room and that people want to play for them because they have this type of personality or whatever. I think if you are surrounded by the most expensive players in the world who feel that they have... Reach the pinnacle of their career because they have been signed by Real Madrid, who only sign Galacticos. There's something weird about doing that. And if you're going to make that knit together, you have to have been a a player who is widely regarded as as quite amazing, and b you you don't need to have the silly personality to make that work. It, it doesn't. You, All you need is to just have a very very still and quiet aura, so that someone like Cristiano Ronaldo will listen to you and we will say, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll sit out this game because you're a bit of a god and you're not making any fuss about it in the media. You're putting us first. You're not putting your media persona first. I think the balance is perfect.
1: I can think of a guy who was a quite special footballing talent, uh, who'd been at a certain club a long time, knew it really, really well, much like Zinedine Zidane, who's been at Real Madrid since 2001. And nobody thinks he's going to be a good manager. Some don't even think he's a good person. That would be Ryan Giggs. What's the difference between Giggs and Zidane in this context? And could the difference be, James, that Zidane actually worked under a bazillion different managers, I think he had 13 managers uh, have been there since 2001, not counting himself, whereas Giggs didn't. So even though they were both sort of the strong, silent, quieter type, one of them had tremendous wealth of experience, which the other did not.
3: I think also um, it's to do with, and I wrote a piece on Zidane last week and I spoke to a guy called Guy Lacombe who tutored him at the French Direction Technique Nationale and he says that Zidane's tactical imprint, I don't want to say philosophy because I think it's actually one of the really interesting things about Zidane is that he appears sort of not to have a particularly kind of defined philosophy, but he's basically, he's absorbed uh, the influence of all the various different coaches that he worked under not just in his early coaching career but also in his playing career, so Lippi and and Del Bosque worked on some very good coaches although I don't think anyone is saying that tactical genius is kind of at the heart of Zidane's success I think you have to recognise that throughout the Champions League campaign he made some very very smart and effective changes I think in the last 16 second leg against Napoli when they were, I think they were one nil down, they were a goal away from going out. He switched from four three three to four four two against Bayern Munich in the first leg when they were outplayed in the first half of the first leg. He did a similar sort of thing and he brought on Marco Asensio, which brilliant substitution, completely changed the game. And and even in the final, he sort of appeared to kind of maybe slightly tweak things, maybe move Modric a little bit more out to the right. So the guy has got to get some credit. And the other thing I think is really interesting is that, and it ties in with what you were saying about Real Madrid not really having a thing per se, we're so in love with this this cult of, you know really dogmatic coaches coaches with a very, very clear tactical blueprint slash philosophy the likes of Guardiola and Klopp. Zidane is sort of much more of a kind of blank slate, I think but it appears to work.
1: Hughes, you get the final word on this. Is, is Zidane more of a blank slate, just because he hasn't had that long as a manager or because I agree with what James said in terms of there being less a definition or or is the definition actually maybe that in this case with this team with this group of players his real value added is that he just gets superstars to work together and avoid controversy in a way that that other managers in the past have been have been unable to do.
4: Yeah, I think that's the key. I mean Clearly, you look at Real Madrid, and it's different to the narrative narratives having the Premier League, and that the manager, ironically, despite being one of the best players that ever played, is not the story. He makes sure that the players are the story, and the players are the stars of that club. I think that's one of the reasons Jose Mourinho didn't last there very long. One of many that you know the manager has to be the star in a Mourinho team, um, whereas the Real Madrid, the players are the stars, and. Zidane has been shrewd enough to realize that and facilitate it, and he is, he's certainly got the best out of what he's got, and um, and he's succeeded. I also do think he probably has benefited from Barcelona's relative decline to an extent. Clearly, a team in transition since they won the treble a couple of years ago, and he's been able to capitalize on that.
1: Huddersfield, they're up. They're in the Premier League. Because of this weird ritual that you people have, where like the season ends and then you have the championship playoffs, I feel like Huddersfield are a bigger story than the other two teams that came up, Newcastle and, and, and Brighton. Uh, at least they seem to get more coverage. Husie, you're from the area. You were there at Wembley. Can you tell us what people who don't follow the championship need to know about Huddersfield and uh, and their manager?
5: The most
4: important thing is they've got an outstanding young manager, which several people at the club Deserve huge credit for appointing. Really, they appointed David Wagner from. Uh, he was an unknown at the time. This is of November, the season before last. He was coaching Dortmund under 23s. Uh, they weren't actually doing very well because a lot of the, t- the under 23 players had been moved up to the first team. But um, someone at Huddersfield recommended by an agent. They went there and met him and were sufficiently impressed to uh, take a big, big gamble, give him the job the first foreign manager in. Huddersfield's long history and um, bought in Gagan pressing, double triple training sessions, training training in the afternoons, the evenings, sort of you know fairly r- radical things at the championship level. And uh, this year has been um, rewarded with a excellent little team assembled on a low budget, the fourth lowest wage bill in the championship, and yet they still finished fifth and got up via the playoff final. So he's um, the, it's he's a the second great achievement for him.
1: He's the second American manager to manage in the Premier League, isn't he?
4: He did play for America, I, uh, but he's German. I, I'm
1: joking. I'm joking. Yes, he's he's not just a little bit German. He's he's extremely German. But yeah, he did.
2: Matt, do you know if cause this has just occurred to me, which is why I don't know the answer? But you know, he he um, took the players off to go hunting and fishing, and you had to yeah. kill what you ate, and did one of those like team bonding exercises, and took it slightly to more extremes than people normally do. Did he re- replicate any of that throughout? This season to get them there. Did he? Were there inter- intermittent little trips to the Highlands or something? Or did he? Did he try and replicate that?
4: <laughs> Don't think so. They went. To, I think they went to Portugal before the final, but that was um, kind of a bit of warm weather and football rather than uh, hunting stags in the Highlands. I think that was a that was a one off trip to a remote island off Sweden, basically because he signed fourteen new players last summer. None of them knew each other, and the, the idea was to. Um, try and bomb them close together. He'd done a few other little things, not as dramatic as that, but for example, he got the board to put it in the contracts that all the players have to live within 15 miles of the training ground and sort of try to kind of root them in the community. The fans can go and watch training any day. The, the uh, players can is open to the public. So it's sort of, they've tried to kind of create a kind of community vibe in what is a relatively small town. It'll be interesting to see if that um survives the influx of interest that will follow them being in the Premier League.
1: They were hunting like with actual guns or was it like sort of bow and arrow and crossbow and stuff like that? Did he actually give these footballers firearms?
4: I think it was more knives and fishing rods and things.
1: So they were hunting with uh, knives?
4: They had to get the they, weren't, they were mainly fishing, frankly. And okay,
1: fishing <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was just wondering about the insurance uh, implications <laughs> of, all right, knives, I can kind of get. To. So so basically, it was a fishing trip. They had fishing rods and then they had the. To-
2: but it might put off. When he has to sign 14 new players to cope in the Premier League, I'm being slightly um, uh, rude here, but if they if the 14 new players he has to sign this summer, they're not going to sign if they're going to have to go off and hunt and fish or just eat rice for a fortnight. I
4: don't know, that sounds like fun to me. I'll be all over there. A couple of weeks in the wild. Think or swim.
1: <laughs> Final point about Huddersfield and the region. Um, I know it because it's near Leeds. Leeds has a glorious past. Bradford's been in, in the Premier League. Did you expect Huddersfield to be sort of the first
4: team back up from there? Uh, no. No one did, which is partly what makes it such a good story. Uh, they're the first... Yorkshire team in the Premier League since Leeds went down in I think 2004 and they're surrounded by much bigger clubs historically Sheffield Wednesday Sheffield United, Leeds United all bigger, Bradford sort of probably comparable uh, but obviously they've been in the Premier League far more recently than Huddersfield have, they've never been in the Premier League, haven't been in the top flight since 1972 so um, no it's a, it's a remarkable achievement for the club and it's, it's good for the, good for the whole region Yorkshire has been a bit of a black spot really for football over the last 15 years and particularly set alongside the um, achievements of clubs smaller clubs inside of the Pennines you know Burnley's have been in Premier League Wigan for a long time Blackpool even who you know historically not as big as Leeds United so it's good to see York's club back and uh, spread the Premier League love around
2: they're only there because they were slightly better at penalties than Reading, who were rubbish at penalties. I saw Yap before the final, and we had a bit of a row. And you I said, "Row with Yap I, I did, and I said, "I said, Dutch I said, man. I said, uh, you're rubbish at penalties." And he said, "We're not rubbish." I said, "Well, you are, and you've admitted you are." So he didn't like me because I, anyway. And I said, "But anyway, uh, uh, we're spitting hairs. You're not good at penalties. So what are you going to do? What are you doing now to make sure when it goes to a penalty shootout at Wembley, you don't muck it up?" and he, he, he couldn't and un- wouldn't answer it I mean, I just don't see how you go into a game like that and don't sort that out I don't want to rain on your parade Matt I know you're very happy but ultimately isn't, do you not think it's slightly pathetic not to sort out your penalties because you, he had a whole season where only, they were only worse than Fulham at taking penalties through the season he knows they're poor at penalties he's even said to the media no one's scoring penalties in training sort it out
4: yeah, a bit odd, especially if they've got a really outstanding keeper, al Hadzi, who obviously said his penalty himself. He did his job, but um, yes. the outfield players couldn't do it. The other weird thing about Huddersfield is they managed to get promoted with a negative goal difference, <laughs> which I think must be uh, must be a first. It's one for the stats nerds out there.
5: Hi.
1: All right. In the second half of our podcast today, we're going to try to be helpful, and I'm actually going to put a clock on this so that we're all going to be nice and disciplined. We're going to look at last season's top six in in the Premier League, and we're going to make a little to do list of what they have to deal with. It, it can be sort of identifying positions they need to strengthen. It can be, uh, I would I would assume, in the case of Arsenal, it might be whether you know figuring out whether they want to renew uh, Ozil and uh, and Alexis Sanchez. But we're going to try to be helpful and constructive. So I'm going to start with you, James. Manchester City, they've already brought in Bernardo Silva. They're very close to bringing in Ederson. I believe it's just about officials, not yet.
3: What more do they have to do? It was quite clear that the goalkeeping situation was probably the most glaring one. And obviously, as you said, it looks like they're about to address that by signing Ederson. It's for a lot of money, too. For a, a lot of money, yeah. I think it's fairly obvious that defence is their biggest area of need. I think we've discussed on previous podcasts how Pep probably counted too heavily on the fitness of Van company last season. I don't know if we're at the stage whether we're calling it last season or this season. Yeah, you're allowed
1: to call it last season. Sure.
3: Uh, but uh, I, I think, I, I imagine that he will probably try and sign a centre-back and I think probably two Fullbacks as well.
1: As oh, so they also renewed Yaya Torre in midfield so that he doesn't need to sign another midfielder, right?
2: That surprised me actually and I was glad about it. I, I, For some reason the whole Yaya Torre saga has become dominated by what his agent has said and the whole birthday cake incident where in fact he's a really really good player and he's lovely to watch and we're very I'm glad he's in the Premier League and I'm glad we're going to have another season of him. The thing about City I would say is it does seem to be that Pep wants to build the team around John Stones and is that because he costs so much or does he genuinely see a player around whom you do build a team when it sort of fell apart slightly for Stones? in the last campaign. I don't know what's going on there. He's English.
1: So there's and there's a homegrown player requirement as well, uh, which You
2: have to build. There's no requirement. You have to build your team around an Englishman, though, is there?
1: No, but you spent a lot of money on him and he was marketable, he's intelligent, he's, he's a Isn't
2: that just replicating the problem which was there was too much pressure on a young developing player the first time around? I did, let's just heap more on him.
1: Hughesy, is there anything else that they need to do is is there an Aguero issue, for example?
4: well they need to decide if he's going to stay if he's going to stay how often he's going to play Uh, they do have a surfeit of of, uh, attacking players um, and it'll be intriguing to work out and to see how he's going to play I'd be a bit worried if I was Raheem Sterling given Silva has just signed and obviously Silva's still there Uh, De Bruyne you think would have to play Aguero Jesus so I mean yeah blimey picking that picking that front four or five is going to be very difficult yeah I don't
1: I don't know, I, I see Bernardo Silva going to the, to the bench or, or maybe being an alternative for, for De Bruyne and David Silva. I don't see him. I think he and Sterling do different things in, in Pep's vision. But Moving on to the red half, Manchester United. Um, a while back, Jose Mourinho said that he needed three or four transfer windows to get the team to where he wanted. That was some transfer windows ago, but throwing Ibrahimović's injury, David De Gea, there's a lot of work for him to do, Alisson, what give me three items on his to-do list.
2: Really? Is there a lot of... Work? I mean, yeah, he's in, he, needs, oh he needs someone... No, no, he needs someone to replace Slatter, and clearly, that a serious injury and his it's not age... It's going to be Griezmann, and right? And everything, and it... it they, they say it
1: won't be Griezmann. It they looks like brief first it won't, us, be. They won't be Griezmann. Well,
2: it looks like it won't be. Sure, so go out and buy um, a decent striker, which is easier said than done, I know, but come on, they have... They, they really did have more depth of any club in the top six. They really did. They had injury crisis after injury crisis, and the people they were bringing in were were calibre players. They need to stop obsessing about marquee signings. I mean, they just need to stop. Okay, no, no, just tell me what they need to do. So they need to stop obsessing. Gradually.
1: Sign a centre forward.
2: They've got an amazing academy. They've got enough, they spent enough money on outsiders now. They need to make sure they get that balance right between what they're producing and what they've already got. And sort out and sort. Most of all, United need to sort out their um, training pitch and their medics. I mean, there's something going wrong. They they had too many too many injuries. Sort that out. Stop just buying to look cool.
1: Is that really all they need to do? Sign a centre forward?
4: Uh, No, I think they need to sort out centre midfield as well Um, and centre half. It's clear he didn't really fancy Jones and Smalling. Rojo is hugely improved, but. Still unreliable, and I'm sending off waiting to happen. Just me. So I do think, although they've got a lot of bodies and superficial quality, Mourinho has a lot of issues with uh, that squad. I mean, if you think about to all the players he criticised in public last year, it's, it's clear he's not particularly happy. But then again, when is he ever happy? If
1: David De Gea really wants to leave, we all know agents can help just make that happen, right? Now, David De Gea's agent also happens to be the agent to the Manchester United manager, Jose Mourinho. Shouldn't there be situations where people recuse themselves or whatever? If, if you're George, how do you keep everybody happy here?
4: Well, if you're George, then you keep some people happy some days and others happier on <laughs> other days. And I guess he, he will have a decision to make. I, I would imagine that his most important client is Jose Mourinho, partly because Jose Mourinho can make him more money than anyone else because he can... Uh, direct with the direction of travel, of transfers at Man United, whereas David De Gea can only earn him one commission. So um, On the other hand, you do
1: you do another favour for Florentino at the other end, and you've got, you know, he's got James, which he's got to put somewhere, right? And, I don't know, it's... It, it, it it's extri- I just find it extraordinary how people get all bent out of shape because of the size of Minerala's commission and how much money an agent did that. And people are talking like, oh, money's going out of the game. And they don't freaking realize the networks of people don't even get me started on managers who use the same sports lawyers and, and actually have the same agents to go and bring in players to their clubs. And you all know who I'm talking about. I just, I just think the narrative's all wrong. We should be asking questions about this kind of stuff rather than just focusing on on the size of a commission. I'm sorry, that was a digression.
4: If you look at Real Madrid's other transfer targets, he probably is one of the more gettable ones. But are Real Madrid really going to um, spend all that money on, on on a goalkeeper? It would be the first time. And Kieran Navas hasn't done a bad job, has he? So um...
1: mm, he, gets, he gets Navas gets criticised probably more than more than he deserves, but. James, United.
3: My personal view on United is that their defensive issues are not actually maybe as bad as some has has been suggested. I think they're Justin kind of. Mourinho
1: probably disagrees with you. Uh,
3: I, I'm sure he does, but I think they're kind of their first choice back four is actually really not that bad. I mean, Valencia was excellent last season. I think Bailly is very very promising. Um, was okay, pretty pretty good. Yeah, yeah, you got the two guys. Yeah, go on. Um, so, as Matt says, Rojo is much improved. I think Blint is. <laughs> <laughs> look of absolute disgust on your Let's face. disagree me, to disagree. Tells me, tells no, to he's a that. very nice guy, and he's <laughs> intelligent
1: and articulate and versatile.
3: But it, we can I agree mean, on that. But if, if. Look, I mean, I don't think even at the moment he is in Jose Mourinho's first choice back four, no. and I think he's a very decent backup, and he's versatile.
1: I'd, but you still need to bring somebody in, no? Would you?
3: I no? agree, yes. Right. I, they probably need to bring in a centre-back. They also really need to work out where is Paul Pogba's best position? Because we've kind of seen he's not he's not necessarily comfortable being the number 10. He's
1: Inside left in a midfield three.
3: Well, exactly. Do they play midfield feet? Do they maybe play a diamond with, with Mkhitaryan at the tip and, and Pogba at one of the sides? I mean, Ashford alongside the new centre forward? Maybe, no? but...
1: Tons of stuff, I think, to, to figure out. But maybe one good thing for Mourinho to do would be not to criticise his players in public, especially the English ones, because that's the kind of thing that comes back to bite you eventually. Chelsea,
4: Husey, let's start with you. Well, their first priority is to get the manager sorted. I think it will be an like, exit signing a contract fairly soon. And then I think they need a busy summer. Um, and in common with several other clubs, particularly Arsenal, they need to be sure they're going to retain the players they've got before they can buy. Um, Obviously, Costa has been unsettled for a while, but they don't appear to be many bidders for him because Madrid can't sign players and the Chinese clubs have been hit by this um, new foreign players tax, which one would think would make him perfectly expensive. So he may end up staying after all that Uh, and they'll obviously need to try and keep hold of Hazard and Cartois, which I think they will if all those players do stay, I still think they need a centre midfield player, uh, probably Bakayoko. They need a backup centre forward to Costa who's more reliable than Batshuayi and they need one, maybe two wing-backs and a reserve goalkeeper. So... um, yeah, there's, there's definitely work to do because although they were worthy champions, they were helped enormously by a light fixture list and not being in Europe. So if they're going to compete on all fronts, they're going to need greater strength and depth because they can't rec- rely on uh, Hazard and, and Costa to get all the goals for the next season.
1: Alison, simple as that. Did you give Conte what he wants so then, in terms of the contract and power and then bring in uh, a midfielder striker in a couple of Yeah, probably
2: defenders? because Chelsea... Uh, they were greater than the sum of their parts which means that you have to say the manager did a great job I mean I know people who adore Chelsea you know big big fans but they, t- <laughs> they you go through the team and then you know they're not that happy with, with them on a man to man basis I mean Azpilicueta is about the only player uh, that, that is adored really everyone else it seems to me is, is expendable if you take a really Conte, no? tough look at it
1: Conte is probably
2: Room. Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, the manager himself has said, I need to find a leader because John Terry didn't play, but he was really important in adding that buzz in the dressing room and taking the pressure off Cahill as, a, as captain, I think, and really adding that sort of we are Chelsea thing that they had going. Without him there, it could all become a bunch of mercenaries.
3: James? In, in some ways, I think the issues that Chelsea are facing are actually not dissimilar totally different circumstances in some ways but I think they're not dissimilar to the issues that Leicester faced at the end of last season in that they've won the league they didn't play any European football and their success was really largely built on having an extremely settled formation and very very settled personnel with exceptional kind of loyalty to a base Italian manager manager of, manager. of, (laughs) of you know pretty much 13 players no more than that, really. Pizza. Uh, and ice cream. <laughs> and, and, and those Christian ingredients as well. So now they need to transition to, to a team that can... Play now they've got European and, football yeah. and they're going to need to buy more players. And the question is, does he buy players purely to fit into that 3-4-3 three, three, or does he mix it up a little bit more now that they're playing European football? If, for example, he's going to stay with 3-4-3, three, three, does he buy backup wing-backs, which is obviously quite a specialist position. Going back to what Matt said, though, I think Batshuayi maybe we're going to get into the whole end of season discussion again but you know he looked pretty good in the final three games of the season the issue with Batshuayi was more that Conte just didn't or doesn't seem to trust him at all but in the little game time he had I thought he acquitted himself quite well
1: I think he felt he didn't, once they moved to the 3-4-3 he felt that Batshuayi didn't have the right movement um, and wasn't picking up on it quickly enough Right, um, I think that was the issue there If they can get a top defender, I think they will. Um, But if not, rather than bringing in a body, I think they'd rather take a long, hard look, perhaps in preseason, at Nathan Ake. and Christensen. Or, exactly, or Christensen. Tottenham Hotspur, second in the table. Usually, we all love Pochettino. I love Pochettino. I love Dele Alley. This seems very good. What do they need to do? And also, can you tell me what they're doing recruitment-wise? Because, obviously... Mitchell's gone, Badini's gone, a while back. Who's actually deciding and how do they avoid further Sissoko Jansen situations?
4: And probably the new chief scout uh, I think came from Derby, whose name has temporarily escaped me a couple of months ago. So he's working with Daniel Levy, who, to be honest, has been de facto director of football for a while. He runs that club from top to bottom and has the final say on signings, wage bills, fees etc and again their priority will be keeping what they've got and trying to add a bit of depth to the squad they probably again need a, a better backup to Hurricane than they've got and um, maybe a little bit more creativity in midfield rather than relying on Eriksson and Deli Alley to um, provide all the goals for them they again, a bit like Chelsea are a team that are almost too settled and I think they could do with better competition. I remember going to the cup semi-final and Chelsea were able to bring on Fabregas, Hazard and Costa and um, Spurs' bench just did not compare and uh, after 60 minutes, that is what cost them the game. So if they're going to um, get over the line and win trophies, they need greater strength in depth, I think.
1: Excuse me, I'm dying for my man Eric to come back and have Pochicino come out and say he's like a new signing. Is that going to happen?
4: It does Um... I don't think he'll say that because he's not that daft but um, I don't know, that's that, That's the mystery of the season that isn't it, that injury that's dragged on and on and on and on and he finally, Eric won and got the surgery that apparently he'd been after for a while and Tottenham were reluctant to sign off but um, well, I hope he does come back because you know, the season before last he was key to that team.
1: El coco la mer, I love the guy. Uh, Alison?
2: Yeah, no, I is think left it's, out? It's, re- it's, it's really important they don't um, if, if Kyle Walker's going, that has to be the end of the people leaving, to be quite honest, because otherwise it's like taking two steps forward and three steps back. What he has now, Pochettino, he has to be able to prove he can take them another step further. And sure, sure, another striker would be great. But if if, if Deli Alley gets tempted away by some big money or just just something foreign i don't know it, it could all fall apart very easily that uh, pochettino has that loyalty factor i think and it'd be really good or if he it leads. keeps the team together with just a little addition here and there
1: what if he leaves or is there's not gonna we don't think it's gonna happen. It's unlikely to happen this summer but what if pochettino decides to go and be you know really big boots and says like hey daniel you want me to stay i want some serious investment i want this guy, that guy, I want some big spending. What does Levy say to him then, James?
3: I, I think they've got to, I don't know, it's difficult because you get into hypotheticals, but I, I think Pochettino is absolutely crucial to. to yeah,
1: but so if he goes there and he says, listen, okay, maybe Jansen and Sissoko didn't work out, Sissoko cost, cost a me, ma- I know that. But you know what? We wouldn't have had this problem if I'd had 50 million pounds to spend on each one rather than 30 million. You're getting an extra bazillion zillion from the the Premier League because we finished second, thanks to me. Um, how about you give me some some big money and I go and I buy some real players rather than trying to find weirdo Dutch bargains
3: or or malcontents from relegated clubs? I'd be uh, inclined to give Pochettino what he, what he wants because I, I think... Pochettino is absolutely crucial to the whole project. Um, whether they actually need to go and blow a load of money on big, big signings, I don't necessarily know. Their first 11 is arguably the one that leads n- least tweaking of all. Right back is the one area that if Walker leaves, they, they, you know, would need to address.
1: Enough spurs. Let's talk about somebody who's actually won it five times. You know where I'm going with this? Allison. <laughs> You had the special situation, Jurgen Klopp calls you up and says like, I'm just working on my to-do list, let's just compare notes. What <laughs> do we need to do this
2: summer? Uh, I would say, Jurgen, be as busy as you can possibly be. Buy, buy and then buy some more Jurgen, I would say. And I, I'm heartened a bit by the fact that we've only just, the season's only just ended and he's already identifying targets and Liverpool are being linked with players and I don't care at this stage that they're not that exciting. I mean, Salah from Roma, unfortunately, it may just be that I've only ever seen him play badly. I've yet to see him play well in the flesh. I don't think he's the answer to any big problems. Um, but yeah, it doesn't matter. Bye, 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 bye. I'd like Van Dyke. I think his reputation has grown by not playing. What limited appearances we have seen from him in the Premier League. He does have that timing, that aura, and probably is going to get, better but just hoover them up we need a whole we Liverpool need a whole another squad I, I'm sick and tired of how rubbish our bench was throughout the season and in some respects finishing in the top four was remarkable given we had never had anyone to bring off the bench
1: James are you as negative as Alison is
3: I agree that they need they need a bit of an influx of players that notice he doesn't say we they, they, they don't have um as we've discussed at length, they don't have the same kind of depth as as some of their rivals. I think Solara is quite an exciting signing. I think he's... was he not the top assist provider in Serie A, or certainly certainly I don't quite. Know if he was, but he had like 15 quite, goals and eleven uh, assists this season. High on that table. He did play for a very attacking team, and, and you know, but yeah, also would prevent Coutinho having to play on the wing, which is not his best position. I don't think. And uh, one thing about
1: just is that. Uh, he is very much an up and down mm. player, so you're getting somebody who's ridiculously fast. You don't necessarily get like Mane or or, or, or Coutinho who have that other dimension as well.
3: An attack with with Mane and, and Salah would be potentially, I mean, pretty rather, pretty r- rapid quick, and, yeah. and, exi- and exciting. Um, yeah, I think um, they need to buy a centre back. I think Van Dijk would be a great signing for them. Um, they also need to decide if they do buy a centre back, which out of Lovren and Matip is the first choice and which, which is not. I know Paul Joyce says that they're, they're not going to try and sign a left back, but I think they, I think they need to.
1: Husey, what's your take? And can you also explain something else? I, I was thinking, we're certainly ter- told that you know Liverpool aren't the lavish spenders that City and Chelsea are, and yet. From what we've reported, from what Jersey's reported, like Liverpool are totally in the hunt for for Van Dijk and kind of going head to head with City and Chelsea. Is is that odd to you?
4: Um, well, it is odd, and it's also not true. So it's They're fake news. It's not fake news. It's yeah, it's true that they want to sign him, but I think there's a very little chance of them actually doing it. My information is they were prepared to offer him one hundred and twenty thousand pounds a week, whereas. Chelsea and Man City are looking north of 170, 180. So I think there's very little chance of him ending up at Liverpool because uh, he can earn more money elsewhere and the other clubs can probably offer him more realistic chances of silverware. So I think the centre-back's a problem. Um, Salah, I have seen him play brilliantly, but only for Basel when when they um, played Chelsea in the Europa League a, a few years ago. And that is the reason Chelsea signed him. But he was totally anonymous at Chelsea. He didn't really get much of a chance, but when he did he looks really short of confidence. So I, I, I would have reservations about his ability to make an immediate impact on the Premier League. I think they need a proper centre-forward, really, rather than kind of relying on Firmino and Mane and Coutinho to score the goals. So and you would
1: sell Studge, then?
4: Yeah, I would sell Studge. I, I just don't think you can rely upon him. So if West Ham make an offer anywhere near reasonable, I would bite the off and reinvest on a, a more orthodox Front man. That is what Liverpool
1: need most. Enough Liverpool. We talk Liverpool enough on here. Let's move on to a subject we haven't broached in a while, and um, that's Arsenal, who have a new manager who's the same as the old manager. Uh, Husey, I'm assuming the very first order of business, and if anybody says anything else, they're I think silly, is figuring out whether Alexis Sanchez and Mesut Ozil are going to stay at the club. Is that right?
4: Yeah, and for how long and at what cost? To be fair to Arsenal, having been really slow off the mark initially, they've actually they're doing all they can at the minute, but the bottom line is the players are under no compulsion to to re sign and I am not sure they will. I think they'll let it drag on all summer. I think Sanchez will try and lead as he can and Ozil will either squeeze more money out of Arsenal or run his contract down, hope of getting a better um, a better deal twelve months' time when he can leave for free. So I think that is <laughs> Having sorted out Wenger, they've now got a, a, an even bigger problem because without particularly Sanchez, they're uh, not the, not the same team. And uh, I think they're now um, paying the price for poor management and the search of the club in, in previous years. There's no way players of that value should be entering the final twelve months of their contract. And to look across London at what Daniel Levy does at Tottenham, and everyone mocks about him. You know, not paying the money, but. All their best players are on four-year contracts. And uh, the powers of the club, whereas Arsenal, the powers of the players.
1: But I read reports that they're ready to offer them 280 grand a week. Hey, Hughes, just to just, just give you another word on this. Hey, first of all, does that seem reasonable? Because it seems absurdly high to me, especially for one of those two. Secondly, would they be better off not treating Ozil and Sanchez as if they were like a married couple? Because it seems to me like their situations are completely are completely different in the sense that they're different players, and frankly, in my opinion, one of the two is far better than the other.
4: I agree with that, but the similarity is the length of time remaining on the contract, and the fact that they want them both to stay. So Doesn't both to players. Pay them the
1: same, right? Is that Is that two eighty k? Is that figure real, or is that just come? You're not going to go that high, are they?
4: so I think that's the late, that, that was the latest figure. I think about, they may be prepared to get to three hundred to get Sanchez, which. Is extraordinary. for... Uh, it's complete, I, well, who
1: makes three hundred? Who makes three hundred k in the Premier League?
4: Blatant Rooney's on 250. Okay, so
1: one guy who's injured and might never play again, and another guy who's leaving. Okay.
4: Yeah. There's
1: nobody else,
4: right? Yeah, it underlines Arsenal's desperation, really, and also the fact that those guys think they can get that money elsewhere. Certainly, Sanchez.
1: James, when players enter the final year of their contract when we only have a year left and there's a threat of them running it down, they they become cut price players uh, and you can't get full whack transfer fee for them. Is there a price at which it makes sense for them to sell Alexis?
3: I'm not so sure. Um, his value to the team in, in terms of goals and assists and also that sort of never-say-die attitude, I think, is irreplaceable.
1: Uh, so what would you do with these people? Like all right, we, we, without Sanchez and Ozil, I mean, I know obviously a lot depends on what they do. There, other areas they need to be looking at. Should they just ditch Bellerin altogether at this point?
2: No. Why do you not like him?
1: I think he's too small to be taken seriously no, as a I person. I'm like no, just him. kidding. No, no, he does. But if you're if you're gonna pay, if you're gonna if you're gonna play a back three, which I guess is another thing that he needs to decide, he's probably not an obvious fit.
2: Yeah. No. Well, yeah, that was the sort of um, and you have somebody willing hurried, to go and pay a lot of money. Change that that worked sometimes. Uh, by design and sometimes by luck and it's been quite poisonous at the Emirates for quite a while and I do think there's a chance for it to be seen as okay let's calm down we've got two more years of Wenger let's give him one last chance but the atmosphere will get worse if Sanchez was to go to a Premier League club that's the big fear now there's no more banners about Wenger out because that's happened, he's staying it's going to be the thing that Arsenal fans fear now is is that repetition of losing an iconic player to another English team who then go on and do great things. The Van Persie syndrome, you could call it. Don't don't let that happen to us. I don't think it matters enormously if Sanchez um, was to go abroad. I think he's mentioned Germany himself, uh, as long as they were able to spend really big and bring somebody in. And then you've got the whole old fashioned argument about well they're not offering Champions League football to the best in the world, so why would they go there? of all the clubs we've discussed they're going to have the most interesting summer and the most crucial summer but if you rewind to um, the start of the season the Arsenal squad was a good squad it had depth it had quality
1: and remember you've got Casorla and Wilshire coming back as well and they're like new signings <laughs> I don't know I, I'll tell you this but if they're really offering him 300 grand I don't think Alexis Sanchez is going to get 300 grand a week if he goes to Bayern in fact I'm pretty sure he won't if he takes a pay cut to go to Bayern. What an insult. <laughs> what does that say? You know, Arsenal can say, No, we're not gonna sell you to City or Chelsea or Liverpool or whatever. You know, you can sit here and hang out, you know, on the bench with Kieran Gibbs the rest of the year and then, you know Um, they could do that and you know, there's also an argument to be made. They'd be saving themselves a big amount on wages vis a vis a new contract and But by the same token if he says, No, oh, I wanna go to Bayern, I wanna go to Bayern, he can and take a pay cut, he can also work it in such a way that maybe Bayern chip in a little bit more on the transfer fee to persuade Arsenal. So, I don't know, it just seems to me like Dick Law, if he's still around, I was told he was going to leave, then now he's staying. I'm assuming that guy's going to be locked in a room with a lot of agents making some really big decisions for at least the next couple of weeks that's all we've got time for today and indeed for this season many many thanks to all my excellent guests who helped us out this year to the people who have filled in so capably while i was away allison rudd and of course my friend max rushton uh, also big shout out to our producer charlie who is frankly so much better than the guys we had uh, before also to to dave mcguire who did the job early in the year because of the, uh, the the incident on uh, on Saturday night, um, we were unable to get into our regular studio and uh, in, in the Times Building by London Bridge. Uh, so we're, we're coming to you thanks to our friends at, at Talksport, who uh, who kindly uh, gave us uh, shelter on this uh, Monday morning. To subscribe to the Times, it's just twelve pounds for a twelve week trial. And next season, if you do that, you can access highlights of every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, FA Cup, and also the SPFL with special commentary from James Gearbrand. Have a great summer, and hopefully we'll
3: see you in August. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.